Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show. Uh, today, we have a, a special podcast. We were uh, we decided there's uh, time for a mailbag. We hadn't done one in a while. And uh, the questions kept pouring in, uh, typically about one subject, and that was David Benley Hart. And so, I am here in Abilene, Texas, uh, with my father. Hello, father. Hello, audience. There, there, there it is, Dad. And uh, as I was putting this together, I realized that we have a friend, Mr. Randy Harris, who is our only friend, our only friend and the smartest person I know, who is <laughs> yeah. willing to come on the podcast yeah. this afternoon. Did you tell David Bentley Hart that I was the smartest person that you knew? I, I would kind of like to hear you and him discuss who's the smartest person. I feel, I feel like he would really... Oh, me. Yeah, and so I didn't really have the idea that we're going to do uh, these, like, have you on, and so I really only have two microphones, and so uh, my dad and I are going to be sharing a microphone, so, like, it's going to be like... Hello. There it is. Like, this is old school style. Randy gets his own microphone, um, but we have a couple questions. One question before we get to David Benley Hart uh, is a question that someone asked about uh, how much you enjoy dad, uh, all the stories I tell about my childhood, and there's something about how accurate those stories were but i don't feel like that question is really that important the more i think the question is people do you like all those stories about your parenting being shared with the world (laughs) well since they're fictitious they don't really matter (laughs) so now if you want to focus on a specific story most of the time he makes me sound pretty good and but reality is very subjective. And do, you re- do you remember any of the stories that he tells? Oh, I do remember them, but very differently. Oh. <laughs> so I think he's being honest. I think that we just have different perspectives. Well, you're old, Dad. And so it's going to be hard for you to remember that stuff. But I have the young mind that is still more accurate. Because Randy, do you tell stories like from the womb, or do you? <laughs> I mean, I've I I've waited a few years. Okay. I don't want to talk about those. Do you have clear two year old memories. I have clear five year old memories. No, because no. here's the thing, Randy. I don't know if you know this, but most research says that our memories are one hundred percent perfect, and that <laughs> our the human mind is completely accurate when it comes to depicting what took place. Right. If you think fast and think slow, what you can do is accurately pull up good memories. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Does that make you burn a little on the inside that I referenced a book that completely critiques what I just said? I know. And that you probably haven't read. <laughs> oh, oh, that hurt. I've read a lot of it. Okay. Uh, let's put- <laughs> <laughs> I have the cover is not the majority of the book. <laughs> no, I've read substantial amount, including the part where it talks about how the eyewitness is uh, is a deeply flawed person in the court of law. And uh, yeah, I've read that. Thank okay. you. Yeah. You, I think you referenced it many years ago, and so I've. Okay, we're going to move on. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's get to the question at hand. Uh, most of the questions have revolved around one gentleman named David. Bentley Hart. And Randy, I'm assuming that you have, uh, you've known of David Bentley Hart for some time. Yes. When did you first come in contact with David Bentley Hart's work? Um, Somebody put me on to, is it The Beauty of the Infinite? Uh, That sounds right. Um, And I found it uh, utterly flummoxing. So this was probably 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know how long ago he wrote that book. But I, I found it almost... Uh, I, I couldn't really understand it, and so I just figured he was too smart for me. Uh, and then a few years ago, I read Atheist Delusions, which is delightful, and mm-hmm. I, I, I thought it was great. So I've, I've known of, of his work for quite a long while. 
the idea that you would be flummoxed by some of his writing is very, um, it's very encouraging to me because it makes me feel better about the <laughs> fact that there's like 20% of the podcast I did with him. I didn't fully understand what he was saying, specifically all the names that he was just dropping right. left and right. Right. Uh, I knew all the baseball names that he was referencing, sure. but the names after that, he kind of was over my head. Yeah. Yeah. The baseball names are more important. I agree. Yeah. Those are, those are kind of more in my wheelhouse. Okay. So you've known of his work and, uh, this book, uh, 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 all shall be saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read it? I have. Okay. And initial thoughts on the book? Uh, I, I think it is a, an excellent argument for the for the universalist position. I think it's if you're going to make an argument, he's made it. Okay. So uh, l- let's start by like trying to define what what he would mean by universalism and like the general definition of universalism let me do the general one and then you do maybe his definition of it because i think the the general definition is like it all works out in the end uh all the roads are going to lead up to the same mountaintop and we're all good and so that would be kind of like just a generalist universalism is that fair randy yes to some degree yes okay how would you how would you try to summarize now i asked him to kind of summarize his argument and as soon as i was saying the question i knew there's no way he's going to answer this question because that's such a demeaning question to a philosopher. Like, hey, just really tell me what you're trying to say. There's no way he's really going to give me a straight answer. But how do you think he should have answered that? <laughs> well, I can't summarize his argument either, but uh, it is not a position that says uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, it's all tomato, tomato, all saying the same thing, all wind up in the same spot. That's not what he's arguing. Um, he is arguing that God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ will eventually redeem all things. And it must because Scripture argues that God is all in all. And if you heard the podcast, he's quite, mm-hmm. he's quite yeah. invested in that. And God can't be all in all unless uh, he redeems Everyone and everybody. Now, the argument's obviously a lot more complicated than that, but uh, my understanding is that's what he's arguing. Okay. Uh, can you? Can I add to that? Yeah, and I, th- I think one of the things that you did really well during the interview was that you specifically asked him, is this uh, a pluralistic view, which Randy is saying, no, it is, it is not, but it's all through Christ. And it sounded to me like he was agreeing with your summation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's what he's he's going for, that this is all the redemptive work of, of, uh, of Jesus. And can you flesh out more the idea of all in all that, that he, that for God to be all in all, there isn't a space that God isn't sovereign over. It's not like there's a space outside of God's jurisdiction. Um, and that as he, he referenced uh, the, the, I think it's the Pauline, text from timothy that you know it's god's will that all shall be saved yeah but i think the he um he's one of he's nuanced about the way he understands sovereignty Mm -hmm. and so sovereignty is sort of a function of god's goodness it's not just raw power Mm -hmm. and so if if god's sovereignty and his goodness go together then he must reign over everything and that Rain must bring about good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that dog in the background is uh, 
is the opposite of his argument. And disagreeing with me. The, yeah, the, the dogs say not all shall be saved. Yes. yes. Uh, um, the question that I got asked the most was uh, a question that I once asked you uh, after you and I were leaving Richard Rohr's place in Albuquerque, and I turned to you and I asked you the question. I don't know if you remember it, but I definitely do. And I, my question was, okay, how much of that am I allowed to believe? And I've since heard you make a similar uh, response in uh, a different setting, but the, the response you gave me then was, meh, 80%. <laughs> Is that what I said? Yeah, 80%. <laughs> You're allowed to go with 80% of that. Yeah. And... Uh, I've heard, I heard you say just a couple of weeks ago when we were together uh, something about like, yes, yeah, so if, if you agree with 80% of something that someone says, like that's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. Uh, or you said something like that. And I yeah. remember, oh, 80%, that's his thing. Uh, okay, so let me ask you the question about David Vinley Hart. How much of that am I allowed to believe? Um, oh, about 80%. No, no I, I think that what he does a good job doing uh, and I'm, I'm sure he'll be very relieved to know I think that. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to be lacking in confidence, so this would be very helpful for him. Confidence um, is that his position is not an isolated position, that the kind of universalism that he argues for has been there all along. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he, he would admit that it's the minority position, Um. I, he seems to want to argue it's the majority position in the early church, East, early Eastern church. Yeah. Um, I, I'll just tell you, I, that's far enough out of my area of, of expertise that I can't take him on on that. But I, my guess is he's cherry picking a little bit okay. uh, on that, that in the Eastern church, there were people who were universalist and people who were not. Uh, but it's it's not like this is totally absent from the from the Christian tradition. So you could uh, argue for this position and claim to be orthodox, little o orthodox, mm-hmm. and he does. And in fact, he wants to argue the stronger position. It's really hard to be a Christian and not be and not be a, a universalist. Yeah. And so there is some d- discrepancy over how uh, how much of a consensus there was in the Eastern church over this now he would say it, it it's very strong uh, and then people just kind of forgot uh but th- there's some debate over how accurate that statement is i think there would be some debate about that yeah, yeah. and if you might remember uh one rob bell who wrote a book called love wins and i think rob was jumping to make some of those same moves that hey i wasn't the first one to do this i'm putting ideas out there that others had uh pushed forward bef- long before i started doing this um one of the ways that he substantiated, uh, he, David Bentley Hart, substantiated his claim is that Origen is the second most influential person in all of Christianity after Paul, with getting to go. Obviously, Jesus is the most, but after Jesus, Paul, and then Origen. You want to give. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, you know, that's, uh, that's handy, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I. I Again, I'm not buying that, but I, I, I take it that part of his point would be there's a real sense in which Origen is the first systematic theologian, uh, and in that in that case, what he's arguing is true. He's changing the game mm-hmm. uh, in 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 terms of what of what kind of theology uh, is, and so I'd, I'd I'd quickly concede that point. But you know, trying to decide okay, who's the most or least uh, mm-hmm. important, but. 
I don't I don't think there's any question that he's got origin on his side. He's got yeah. Gregory of Nyssa on his side and that other list, laundry list of Eastern yeah. of Eastern fathers. But his argument's not just uh he's not just arguing that he's not that there are plenty of other smart people who've argued his position. He's arguing that it it makes logical, theological, philosophical mm-hmm. uh sense more sense yeah than, I, than what he calls the infernalist position yes and i went out and fleshed out the rest of the list with origin b number two paul's first max lucato is 11 uh you're 26 26 yeah 26 um, am i 26 with a bullet uh i mean no like you're just a standalone <laughs> okay. 20 there's okay. no asterisk by your name okay. some people are assuming that there are some preaching enhancing drugs okay. that are underneath the uh so i'm neither moving up nor down no i think you're pretty I'm much stuck steady. right at 26 okay. but anyway um where, where does your ranking fit uh, uh number three um <laughs> uh no but three on the humility from yeah, yeah from david Milley Hart. no um <laughs> so, so I had a train of thought and just lost it. Um, I mean, I think three is a little generous, but um, it's also optimistic of what can happen in the next 60 years of my life. Um, the uh, so, so Anyway, the big point is that Hart is trying to say, I'm not the one arguing this from the beginning. I'm trying to say this is an argument that's long since been there. And he's a philosopher, but what he's trying to say is that ultimately the text is pointing this direction. Absolutely. How much of his read on the text do you think, obviously he's a translation that came out in the last couple of years, um, how much of his read on those specific passages do you think would change the way that he interprets certain texts? Or do you think his... Uh, that most traditional interpretations of the New Testament, for example, the you know NRSV or the NIV, the you know New American Standard, would all give that same conclusion that he's relying on. That most texts point this direction. Uh, again, you're pretty far outside of the area of my comfort, but I I I think that, for instance, Augustine's some of Augustine's positions are based on bad translations of the text, mm-hmm. and he couldn't read. Greek very well, and he couldn't read Hebrew at all. Okay, so, uh, but if you're asking how much hinges on uh, Hart's translation versus Standard Committee uh, yeah. translation, uh, I'm, I'm guessing some. Mm. And whether his translation is leading to his position or his position is leading to his translation, I imagine that's working. Both ways. Both ways. Yeah. Uh, uh, however, I, th- I think one of the things that he does that's helpful is you have all of these passages in Scripture that talk about all. Yeah. You know, how, how God's going to redeem all, all, all things. things. And um, what he basically accuses of is you don't take any of those seriously. You know, the ones you take seriously are the ones in the synoptics about eternal punishment and then you have this whole other raft of of passages that go in another direction and you just kind of explain why they don't mean what they what they seem to mean and so i I think that's a good challenge you know which which passages are you going to privilege yeah uh your line or your uh i don't know if it's your word but i feel like it is because you're the one who introduced it to me is uh uh scripture is not uh what is it uh Mono, or it's it's not univocal, right? Uh, that that we all are having to privilege one text over the others, yes. and I think you've accurately described what has happened uh, in the past that we've privileged those texts uh, about eternal torment. But 
going forward, do you think there should be a greater emphasis given to other ones that we've kind of made second class texts? Sure. What do you think that would look like? Uh, well, I think I think whenever you know you discover a group of texts you haven't played sufficient paid sufficient attention to, you should pay more attention to them yeah. and see how that changes your changes your theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, yeah, what what would happen? You might wind up where he where yeah. David Bentley Hart is. You might end up over there. The so we obviously had to talk about Hitler because I think everyone has to talk about Hitler when you talk about. Uh, eternity, uh, and not so much Hitler, the actual person, but what Hitler represents. And in some ways, he's the shorthand for people can be awful, and n- no one else ranks higher in that list than in, in most people's modern imagination than Hitler. And so, his argument is to make a discussion about how much freedom one really has. And Dad, I know that you've always talked about determinism, and you've got some strong opinions on that, as he was processing that idea of Hitler wasn't as free as we think he is, um, how is that connecting with the way that you you understand freedom? Well, I do, I do think that there's a number of factors that limit our ability to make a free choice. Uh, that no choice by itself is in isolation. It always has a context, a background. So that's, that's part of my answer. I really appreciated some of the things that he brought up about freedom, about the whole idea about being able to choose well, that freedom by definition requires the ability to choose well, which means that you have knowledge, you have, you have information about what is a good choice. Um, I was very pleased that he also indicated that none of us ever arrive at a point where we have all of the information and consequently we're ultimately free is the way I would read that. It's interesting that he um, uh, emphasized the idea about freedom, uh, that with the greater freedom you actually have a lower frequency of choices. That's not quite the way he said it, but basically if you know what is good, there are many things that are no longer a choice for you, that you act out of your being and clarity of who God is, and you. I guess you can take it as far as saying, if you ultimately have that freedom, that you would not sin. That's, but I think that's more idealistic than realistic. He used some, uh, I guess it's a, a known story, Stockton's, the idea of if you know there's a tiger or the fair maiden behind. Right, right. Lady and the Tiger. Lady and the Tiger. That's common. Yes. Is that, and you, Yes. is it, okay. Um, I'd never heard it before, but I want to pretend like I did. What do you think the point of that that story is, is trying to communicate? Or that, whatever you call it. Well, I think it's what, I think it's what Larry was saying, that if you had uh, perfect rationality and perfect information, uh, you would make a perfectly free choice. You just always make the right choice. But human beings are never in that position. Mm-hmm. And so I think for him, hard. I actually think it's a really strong argument against what I would call the Armenian infernalist position. 
Okay, define that one, well, if you don't mind. That, that you can uh, make free choice, and therefore you deserve hell when you make uh, the, bad, the bad choice. Mm-hmm. Um, what, and, and, and part, of, part of Hart's argument is hell is purgatorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point in the book, I, as I recall, he says it'll be unpleasant enough where you'd probably want to pass on that part if you could. But uh, it, it is in order to continue the process of bringing you to uh, God. Otherwise, it's sort of uh, indefensible. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I would recommend to your listeners a, a recent book called Behave. It's a doorstop of a book. It's 700 pages long, uh, written by a Stanford, you know, kind of neuropsychologist who spent a lot of time studying primates. And it is an excellent sort of, this is everything we know about why human beings behave the way they do. And uh, at the end of that book, you will be very convinced that freedom is much more limited than you thought it was. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, n- uh, not not totally absent, maybe. Although it's about as good an argument for determinism as you're apt to to see, but uh, we all are choosing much less freely than than we think we are. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, uh, then how can a sovereign and good God? Uh, provide us equipment in such a way that we are going to be insufficient to the task of always choosing the right and then punish us eternally if we don't. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, what he's arguing. So if the idea of freedom is not as realistic as we imagine that, that it is. That's a libertarian view of freedom, that you know, I just choose between X, X, X Y, and, and Z. Just that freedom to choose. That's all a right. libertarian view is. Right. It, is there a different view of freedom? That he's, he's got a different view. Oh, yes. How would you describe his view, though? Uh, well, back, back to the lady and the tiger. Uh, the more information that you have, the more clearly you see the good, the freer your choice is. And... From a libertarian view, that starts to look like less and less freedom. But from his point of view, that's more and more freedom. Yeah, and another thing that I liked that he added was um, that freedom requires a certain uh, clarity and avoidance of any limitations due to traumas. It could be physical, psychological, spiritual, um, which in my world... All of us have scars. All of us have things that continue to uh, bring up challenges for us. Mm. So you you ask him about Hitler, um, but I, w- I wonder what the rest of that question looks like. What, what if you ask him about the Holocaust? How does, given his view of God, account for that? Is that not as problematic as hell is? Given his view, of, meaning what? Like uh, that it's the unspeakable evils. That there's no response to that. Is that what you're saying? That God allows it to happen. As in, God allows it to happen, and then there's no. Obviously, there's no 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 no. no that he allows it to happen. 
And, and Randy, just to help you clarify that a little bit, uh, for me, a temporal definition has to be imposed on it. When I think of, okay, it happened over X number of years, it's hor- horrific. Um, and yes, I don't understand how God would allow it, but somehow that's a little more palatable than thinking of eternal punishment. Does that make any difference? Uh, well, it, it, it might make a gut difference. I'm not sure it makes a philosophical or theological difference. Okay. I assume he would say that's a mystery. Okay. But and that's, I don't know. Okay, the direction I took that is that there would need to be, you know, God would get vengeance on the evil of the Holocaust. He's clearly rejecting that. He's rejecting that. Right. And so you're just, it, hmm. How do you process, give me your processing of God being good and the Holocaust happening. <laughs> oh, I think I'll pass on that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm just. I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm just pointing out what one of my one of my colleagues has pointed out to me that um, he shifted the problem of the mystery of evil from eternity into history, but he still hasn't answered it. Do you think there is an answer? Maybe not. And, and maybe that's what he would say. But if you're going to kick it to mystery, then why, why, not, why not hell? So is, is part of this why he moves toward uh, the denouncement of a retributive God, that vengefulness is not punishing, it is reestablishing justice? Right, right. And he's got a lot invested Yes, in that. I may have some, quite a bit invested in that, too. How so? Um, Retribution, the way a lot of people think of it, doesn't fit very well into God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. I would agree with that. Um, And however you're going to think about God, is somehow I'm going to read it through... Jesus, yeah. Yes. Um, And so... Um, whatever punishment there is, however you're going to think about it, uh, would need to be in the direction of reconciliation and justice, not in the direction of vengeance. Yeah. So, so did you hear the part about, uh, or or in the book, did he refer to Mir Slavol? I assume he probably didn't. No, he did not. Well, I I said that really quick. I don't remember that being in the book. I remember Luke Luke bringing bringing it up. up. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your take on that? Um, Yeah, if I I have to take a side on that, I think I'll take Hart's side on that. I have continued to think about his response to that, and I... I can't come up with a better response that the idea that God's response to evil is at the base level that my lower instincts always go to seems to 
uh, devalue what divine goodness is supposed to be, or even uh, what was, as you said, what was revealed in the person of Jesus. I, I would, if I was in Volf's situation and had to deal with evil in a very real way that I have personally never experienced, uh, I could also see why Volf's answer makes a whole lot of sense. I read it differently, absolutely. And it yeah. it's the only thing that you could imagine uh, background wolf grew up in um war-torn croatia is that right and uh experienced uh firsthand some terrible things uh that some of the worst things the world has has revealed to us uh as people um and yeah i mean i that might be the only way for me to maintain some sort of nonviolent practice but um I, I do like the idea that that god is calling us to something higher than that and that Punishment is not God's definition of of justice. That there's something more. Yeah, in my practice, when I work with somebody who is dealing with issues where forgiveness is an obvious next move for them, I don't think it's satisfying for me to say, "Oh, well, God will eventually work this out." I I, th- I think they have to carry the heavy load of saying. Am I willing to let this person go, um, even if it's not for the highest motivation? It may only be for self-interest where they're saying, I can't keep dumping this acid, this distress, and keep churning it inside of me and causing more and more and more distress. So out of self-preservation, there is a reason to just let go. And I'd like to think that's partly God's nature that's uh, being addressed. So you you tried to bait him at the end with uh, Tom Wright. <laughs> um, what? And, and he just indicated that there's no way they were they could get together personally, but there's no way they could get together because they read the, the uh, late text, antiquity the Dicker. text. Yeah. yeah. How, how would you say they read it? Oh, What's the fundamental differences? I don't, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start that. Uh, more, that was a reference to some joke that he made before we started recording about Tom Wright, and I know I could just get a rise out of him. Sure. Um, but you've interviewed both. What, do you have a sense of what you think their fundamental differences Honestly, I, read antiquity? I don't know. I, I feel far more comfortable talking about uh, N.T. Wright's position than I am David Bentley Hart. I mean, I, I don't really know... Uh, his work well enough to try to uh, see the difference between him and Wright. I typically, uh, until this podcast, I really, ha- I never read any of his stuff. All I remember is seeing stuff where, oh, David Bentley Hart's going after Tom Wright. And I thought, well, obviously David Bentley Hart's stupid. Uh, <laughs> for just because I, Tom Wright's my guy. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't know what it is. Again, for your listeners who want a kind of entry point for, uh, for Hart, Atheist Delusions is a good place to go. It's very readable. And the argument he's making there is that uh, current atheists want to take all the good things that Christianity has given them and then forget where they got it. Yeah, um, solid move. Yeah, and it's a, it, and it, it is a, a little more, a little more readable than some of the stuff he's written. Okay, okay. So eighty percent of universalism. According to David Lindley Hart, we're allowed to, to, to deal with 80% of that. That's the answer you gave me. Sure. Put it on a spot. I want, I want to know what I'm allowed to say. I, I can believe. 80% of it we're allowed to go with. 
we're allowed to, I think you just get in. That's my mom in the background. Um, just jumping in there. And, uh, the, the idea that the secondary texts don't need to remain secondary. The mm-hmm. texts that say all shall be saved, the idea of God's, uh, universal redemption need to be brought more to the forefront that they, they have a voice that doesn't, uh, it shouldn't cause them to be relegated to second class texts. Mm-hmm. We need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other aspects of what Hart is pushing us towards is a way that changes how we view all people. Uh, because the idea that God creates humanity and that all have the image of God in them, all have an intrinsic worth and value, which of course we see that over and over again in the life of Jesus, that somehow that could turn and in the age to come that somehow he, God could be okay with without all of humanity being reconciled together. Um, I think that's part of a picture that we're going to have to process more. Right. That somehow for for what God's doing in the future to, to be good, it requires all humanity and not just in certain individuals who've done well, but there's an idea of humanity as a collective. Is that is that a change that happens with this? It should. Yes. And how do you think that works out if we start to see salvation as all humanity instead of just all the good people? Well, I think you know you, you get sort of John Donne poetry, right? Mm-hmm. No man is an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Side know, note: so My daughters have a friend whose name is Isola, and every time I say I want to be like, "Hey, no little girls in Isola," <laughs> um, but I feel like she wouldn't get the joke. Yeah. So I, I think that we tend to think of uh, individual human nation. Uh, in individual human nature, and then these individual humans somehow form communities. Mm-hmm. And that it's a different starting point to say that before the first human being was created, there was already relationship in the universe because mm-hmm. of the Trinitarian God. And that relationality is not something that comes later. It's absolutely uh, in, intrinsic. Uh, and for God to be all in all, everybody's got to be included. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do think that's something that would change. I think the, one of the other things I think is really important in Hart's book is, and, th- and this is going to be directed, if I'm reading this book correctly, more at, at Calvinist, is that we use language uh, in such a way uh, about God that we wouldn't have human beings, and so the what that tends to do is make all the language meaningless. Okay, say that again. So if if we apply the word the word good to a human being, we have some ideas about mm-hmm. what that would mean. We may have some disagreements about it, but we basically agree what we mean. Yeah. Well, when we say God is good, it's got to mean something similar. You might as well use a different word. Mm-hmm. You might as well say God is igabuga. Yeah. Rather than good. Yeah. And what he's arguing is uh, by the time we get through describing what the goodness of God is, the word has become so tortured that it is analogically not even close to what we mean by human beings, mm-hmm. and that can't be right. That makes all theological language gibberish. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a really important uh, point that. Um, those words, they don't have to mean exactly the same thing, but they got to be somehow 
uh, so, related to each other. It, the Matthew 7, Jesus making an analogy, analogical statement, uh, about what we know of being a good parent somehow equates to how God understands what it means to be a good God. Absolutely. The argument would be, but God is so much higher than us, and God's ways are higher than our ways, and so our little measly human version of goodness can't equal God's goodness. But what you're saying is goodness has has a, a thread line that's both in humanity and in the divine. Would you consider a human being that decides to torture people for all eternity for not getting it right, you know, could that ever be good? Yeah. And, and, and so, again, even, even if you – I'm willing, in fact, I, I'm ready to argue that the goodness of God is greater than other any human being could be. But if you're going to use the same word, they have to have something in common. Otherwise, I would tend to just make up a word about God. So he's, yeah. he's, you know, and the Bible doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it's talking about God and human beings, the language is at least analogical. Yeah. yeah, and it at least language shapes our perception of reality. And uh, I think I'm with you here that I that what we mean by goodness is such an impoverished understanding of God when we talk about Him being good. And now here's a jump, but tell me if this fits as an, a quintessential example that. The story of the neighbor child who hits, throws his baseball through the window and comes to the house and the father answers the door and the neighbor says, oh, I'm sorry, I broke your window. And the father says, oh, that's all right. I forgive you. I'll go punish my son. Right, which would be along Hart's argument against that view of atonement, which I assume he never uses these terms, uh, a Christus Victor, but I assume it's a Christus Victor view. Of atonement, yeah. Yes. Uh, I don't don't know know if he intentionally avoids those categories. It's a great question. And that would be, if I get a chance to talk to him again, that would be a follow-up question, because obviously he's critiquing the substitutionary penal atonement image of atonement, which, Dad, you just referenced, and moved to this idea, which Christus Victor seemed to be pretty substantial. Um, it was a thousand uh, AD. It, it came along and became pretty prominent at that point. And, uh, but uh, it, it seems for most Calvinists, substitutionary penal atonement isn't just an image of atonement. It is what the gospel is. Right. And that's why I think uh, Hart is going to find some backup about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's why there's going to be a lot of uh, pieces in the Wall Street Journal written about him. <laughs> and his, yeah. But wasn't he taking that as a badge of courage? <laughs> he kept re- referencing that. He definitely was not trying to uh, confuse people that there wasn't anything written negative about him. He, he definitely wasn't uh, trying to disabuse people of that idea. But I, I, atonement, which his whole premise is built on what happens in Christ's death, that it does something for all humanity. It's built around a Christological atonement, but his atonement is going to be different than what has unfortunately become the main view of atonement. So obviously, Christus Victor, it has to be in there. And so maybe one day we'll ask him point blank about that. But yeah, that that definitely changes it. Um, One other thing that we did start with that uh, I heard 
the following words were tweeted to me by uh, a mutual friend of ours about my definition of the churches of Christ. I don't know if you heard that part of the podcast. I did. Uh, he said it was, uh, now I'm not going to wade into this person's name. Uh, I don't want to set that pres- <laughs> precedent uh, on this road, Preston Road, Church of Christ preacher. Um, but he said it was awful. And I feel like in that situation, it, I've listened back to it. And I felt like it wasn't, like, it's not A-plus work, but you've graded projects and sermons of mine at least a C-plus, B-minus, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. If it was on a, if it was on a pop test, it's a B-minus. You know, if if you knew the question in advance, I didn't know the question. Obviously, it would be I didn't more know. like a D plus. Oh, yeah, oh, Randy! But, but you know, on on the spot, you know, oh. I'm willing to be pretty D plus. About That's that. just hurtful, right? We're gonna edit that out for sure. Okay, um, I've got a story about you. I'm telling my next book, which I didn't need to get a release from you for some reason, according to my publisher, and now I don't feel bad about it. So. Um, Okay, a D plus. That's painful. Okay. Well, you, well, what, what would what do you think is significant about the identity of churches of Christ in this particular discussion? Huh. Uh, I. Well, he was quick to point out that it is kind of a sophomoric idea to think that we're just based on the Bible, right? And it's helpful to understand. He was quite dismissive of that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I don't think he's wrong. Uh, I think that there is some uh, growth that we have uh, available to us if we accept some uh, bigger streams that we're actually swimming in, whether we know it or not. Uh, I think that's helpful. Um, I think the awareness that we're a very uh, uh, small tradition that's been around for what five percent of the history of Christianity. Uh, I think should give us the uh, humble disposition to be willing to listen and to understand that hey, there's a lot more out here that we can learn from, and the idea that we have it all figured out should probably be quickly removed from us. Yeah. What else would you add to that? Well, one of the reasons I gave you a D plus is because you missed the length of our history by a hundred years. I mean. You want? How far back would you go? Two hundred, anyway. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, I I never did great in restoration rather, history. Rather but one hundred. Uh, but I was, I would say a couple <laughs> things. You know, for what you know, one of the things that it's, it would be hard to explain to uh, him who doesn't know us is uh, okay. You can make the argument all day from Gregory and Nyssa, mm-hmm. but if we can't be convinced, it's grounded in. Scripture. scripture, then it's not going to fly. Yeah. Uh, but I think what he points out is uh, you didn't come out of the womb reading Scripture and having these ideas. They've been mediated to you through mm-hmm. a lot of history, and you better become aware of, of that. And we haven't always been very aware of that, and we're still fairly unaware of. He, he mentioned how evangelicals have moved towards Calvinism. I think yeah. I think we're often pretty unaware of kind of the theological currents that are swirling around us that are impacting us in ways that um, that we don't know. And and again, he wants to argue that his position is not just the Eastern Church position; it's the position of the it's the dominant view of Scripture. 
Yeah. Um, so that one, if nothing else, should get our interest. Yeah. Okay, if this is the dominant voice of Scripture, then it seems like we should be jumping on this. Uh, now, to substantiate the claim that it is true is another thing, but if, it, if it's not just the patristic argument, uh, but it's a Scripture argument, I think that's going to be far more compelling to us. You, you said, uh, you know, referencing the idea that, you know, evangelicals are kind of being pulled in, a sh- uh, in the current towards Calvinism. He said that. He said that. I, I don't think that's wrong. Um, no. What, what currents... Give me an example of another current you think that's currently pulling. You're around students all the time. You see a lot of... Uh, uh, that a certain kind of uh, of charismatic has become the gold standard for what the experience of God is. As in charismatic experience. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That, that becomes the measuring stick for your relationship. With God, and so that is displayed in. I don't. I'm not. Ex- I don't feel God's presence anymore. Becomes the. That's a litmus test for if you're. Well, I'm, I'm thinking more of of charismata. Oh, is in like the the gifts. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I do, I don't know the history very well, but it it is amazing to me that somewhere around 1906 or whatever the Pentecostal group is basically formed with the presupposition that experience is the is the quintessential example of christianity whereas we in our tradition would say no it's bible it's thought it's rash being rational Mm. you start off with one of those assumptions and you can go in very different directions so Mm. again it it's it's amazing to me how just a few basic principles can make a significant difference in the way it's manifested. Does that sound true? Yes, and I would. Hart, uh, his, his book ends, uh, and again, he would be very dismissive of these of these particular folks who are so important to me. Uh, the book ends with a little discussion of power, and. Um, there, there, there is power at stake in being able to say who goes to hell and who who doesn't. And I think, you know, same old story. I think we ought to be paying attention to how power is operating here and how invested we are in being able to say who's in and who's out. Hmm. Um, and. We, we we want the church to be in control of of that, and that's not just a Catholic problem, although it is a Catholic problem. Again, I'm using anecdotal information here, but boy, that rings so true, especially in my generation. I'm wondering if that's true with the current generations, even though the church may try to exercise control by saying who's in and who's out. I'm not sure that that that's something that's believable. Yeah. yeah. I had uh, one other uh, talking point for a uh, mailbag podcast that's not necessarily David Bentley Hart. And uh, in light of your recent scoring of one of my answers as a D. Um, it was a D plus. D plus. Uh, I don't know if I really want to direct this to you. Um, but maybe before I ask this one, maybe... Uh, is there something you'd like to say 
another answer I gave that was a better grade. Uh, I, maybe to balance that out. I don't know. Maybe you just think about that. But uh, here's a question about reconstruction of faith. So construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, often the three phases that many go through. This is said in many different names. I think uh, uh, order, disorder, reorder. Um, anyway, uh, you're familiar with that, Randy? Yeah. Yes, heard that. Okay. Um, and I know, Dad, you've heard this enough. Um so here's a question. I don't. Uh, I've been in a place where I don't know what to believe anymore. I feel that Christianity, or at least the life of Jesus, rings true to how I would like to live my life. But when some things don't seem to add up in the Bible, my mind has a problem trying to figure out what to hold on to. Not sure if that's an actual question, but I want to know where to start, or at least what truth can I start with and where to go from there. Uh, there's a lot of books and podcasts about deconstruction and doubt, but I can't find anything to help uh, with the rebuilding process. So, where would you start with rebuilding faith after that? Well, I've, I've spent the last three years reading Carl uh, Barth's Church Dogmatics, all, all 13 volumes. And you just finished it a couple weeks ago, Not right? quite done. Oh, I'll, I... I'll be done by the end of the year. Okay. Uh, few, you told us at weeks. Preacher Camp that you just finished something. and I... Well, I was probably through with the volume I was working on, but I, I, I will finish it. I give you a D plus for your honesty. End of the end of the calendar year, three year project. Okay, it ends December thirty. Okay, so Bart. All right, uh, and it's a thirteen volume meditation on Jesus Christ as the Word of God, hmm. and Scripture bears witness to that Word, and preaching bears witness to Scripture, which bears witness to that to that Word. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think reading some stuff that draws you closer to uh, the Word of God is expressed in Jesus Christ is the way you rebuild faith. Okay, how do you, okay give, give me a, another definition of what Jesus as the Word means, because many of us hear Jesus as the Word and you go, uh, uh, isn't the Bible the Word? What, what do you mean by Jesus as the Word? Uh, Jesus is the primary, it's what the Hebrews writer says, is the primary revelation of God. Okay. God may speak and act in different ways, but our, our, our clearest picture of God is uh, Jesus Christ because it's God in the flesh. In the flesh. According to John. So I hope you're not suggesting someone to read the 13-volume work of Bart that took you three years to finish. No, I, I, I think uh, reading, um, reading the Gospels, actually, would be a really good idea. Hmm. And uh, you, know, you probably would suggest some, uh, some N.T. Wright books that will draw you closer to um, you know, mm-hmm. who, who, who Jesus Christ is. So yeah. it, it, it just seems to me like in, in, in Second and Third John that... Um, uh, if you get Jesus right, it doesn't matter what else you get wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, it doesn't really matter what else you get right. Uh, and and so, uh, lots of confusion about the Bible. Okay, okay. Well, let let's start to the one that Scripture is bearing witness to. Both both testaments are, are bearing witness to uh, the covenant that God makes with human beings in Jesus Christ. And though I defer to to your answer, that to me that is the A plus answer. Here's another <laughs> D plus answer. 
I, I'm thinking of simple things like no longer be conformed, but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. So I'm with you on the cognitive side of this. Uh, the other th- side of as a cognitive behavioralist, I'm saying, oh, yeah, but it's not just listening to the word, but doing it. That having some sense of ministry where you're serving someone else, I think the combination of those two are transformative. Yeah. Yeah, I th- and if uh, if our old buddy Richard Beck, uh, who couldn't be here today, if he would have be here, I think there's something about serving that he would probably point to as well. Uh, that goes with it. Um, I-, I like that those go hand in hand. So I'm going to give you a B plus in your answer, Dad. <laughs> Randy, if I, if I could, if I could start over in my preaching career, I would I would preach more about Jesus and less about everything else. Really? Yes. Hmm. Um, and I, I do think that, that Larry's right. You can't stand, and, and Richard, you can't kind of stand out and make a judgment about it. You have to enter into the way of following, and then you start to find out if any of it's true or not. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes that's what we want to do. We want to kind of stand out here and make mm-hmm. objective judgments as if there were such things. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I feel like we've we've solved a lot. I feel like we've gotten a lot figured out. Uh, I feel like uh, when David uh, Bentley Hart listens to this, he'll be taking a lot of notes, copious notes, and uh, he'll have some uh, updates for the next edition of this book. And, uh, man, I, f- I feel like we solved a lot of the world's problems. So, Dad, Randy, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Mom, Audrey, thanks for being our viewing audience. Audrey, do you have anything to add to the podcast? You want to say anything? No. No? All right. Good talk. That's the dog. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>